Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today, I've got Weston Walker from down in Missouri joining me, and he's been a PCC cooperative producer for a while and is working on building a herd of cattle that thrive in that heat, humidity, and infected fescue that that region offers. And I'm looking forward to digging into that. But uh, uh, thanks so much today for joining me, Weston. I appreciate it. And welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Well, thank you, Jared. I really appreciate the opportunity to share our story, and and uh, I thank you for uh, the effort you're putting forth in this herd quitter podcast i know it's been a a great asset uh, to a lot of people so uh, thank you for doing that well i appreciate it it's it's a lot of fun it's i'm glad that it provides value to other people but it's something i'd probably do if it wasn't value to anyone else because it it's valuable to me but uh i i was looking at the website the feral cattle company website just at your kind of uh the, the biography um reading your brief biography or whatever that they've got that there for the cooperative producers and it says that you're an eighth generation livestock producer there in the ozarks is that that right yes uh since uh well all of my family was uh pretty well settled here around the bolivar missouri area since uh 1840s some of the earliest i think was on records about 1832 um the last (laughs) one i think uh, was an immigrant from germany that's somewhere around 1853 so wow. um yep it's it's a lot deep roots run deep here yeah so are you on a family place that that's been that many generations or just in that region just in the region yeah okay. we've uh, uh the place we're on now uh my parents and i got in uh, 2000 oh excuse me 1995 um okay. was whenever we bought the place we're on now um but it's only 160 acres. I've got, uh, it's hard. Everybody in this part of the country has a few cows, you know, uh, the average na- national herd, what, 30, 35 cows and Missouri's right there. Um, and we're always bouncing between second and third ranked in the nation here in Missouri. I think Oklahoma and Missouri trade places some, but Texas, of course, just by sheer size is number one, but you know, there's a lot of cow calf, um, uh, the uh, the U.S. Senate or U.S. representative from the Springfield, Missouri area, which we're near, uh, claimed uh, his claim to fame in D.C., Washington D.C., was that there were more cows in a hundred mile radius uh, of his district than anywhere in the nation. So a uh, lot of cows, uh, and that means everybody, you're in a lot of competition for grass. <laughs> so uh, I do have a, a spring calving herd in southern Illinois uh, with a good. Uh, a friend that's custom grazing over there for me, uh, uh, near, near Cairo, uh, near the con- conjunction there or the junction of uh, the Ohio and the Mississippi, uh, rivers, um, 50 miles North of that, something like that. And then, uh, then I have another friend down in the, uh, Northern Arkansas that's, uh, I'm able to s- save some space here and send heifers. And he's, he's growing my heifers down there on forage, just like what we do. He's also a customer, of Pharaoh cattle company. So, well, that's, that's interesting. And well, I want to get into that later, maybe not quite yet, but just, just, uh, 
owning cattle and working with other custom grazers, I think that's something that I don't think I've talked to someone who specifically does that, who owns a lot of cattle and kind of has them managed elsewhere. So that's an interesting perspective I'd like to hear, but I don't know if you, do you know, I, I always love hearing histories of families and an eighth generation family and in a, in a specific area is pretty cool. Do you know much of the history of your family's ranching or farming story there in Missouri and anything? Well, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, interesting. You ask that question. Sometimes I get to think, and I tell these stories too often, at least, uh, <laughs> some of those family members closest to me say, I've heard it before dad, but, yeah, uh, yeah. um, yeah, uh, my first great, a third great granddad Walker that came from East Tennessee around the Knoxville area in Granger County came in 1832 and settled about 12 miles north of where I'm at now. And uh, of course, this is a subsistence agriculture country. Uh, everybody, when they first settled, wanted some trees, some water, some hill ground, some uh, pasture ground, uh, or, or more meadow, maybe river bottom, creek bottom type ground. So you know, there's there, and there's that in this part of the country. So that's what was settled first. Um, sure. And uh, um, Grandpa came early enough. Uh, Grandpa Walker did uh, Robert Hightower Walker, and he was uh, uh, settled in uh, where he did and never moved for several till like 1875 or something like that. But he the counties he changed so that he lived in the same spot, but lived in five different counties from 1832 really? to 1845. You wow. know, just as populations <laughs> keep increasing, the counties kept getting smaller. And sure. so uh, he has a brand, not a brand. Uh, but there's a brand and, and mark, they called it, I believe they called it the brand and mark uh, group, or I mean book, in uh, in Polk County, Missouri, which was a lot bigger then in 1836 when it was first organized. So somewhere in there, Grandpa's mark, he didn't have a brand, but a mark for his hogs and cattle was the outer uh, lower right ear uh, mm. quarter of the ear cut off. And that's how he marked his. And so it's a registered mark in Polk County in 1836 or something like that. So, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so they had subsistence. When I say that, I mean, even my dad uh, graduated high school in 1968. And, uh, you know, they used to milk 100 head of cows, had beef cows. Uh, My grandpa hauled stock in in, an old two-ton truck before goosenecks were a thing in this part of the world. And and, uh, you know, they loaded hogs at 3, 3 a.m. every Monday morning to go to Springfield. And then Grandpa would load uh, feed, sack feed, and bring it back out, you know, the 50 miles back to and sold feed. You know, so all parts of agriculture, they raised turkeys. Actually, I guess Dad said they sold turkey eggs for a quarter apiece back then. I, I suppose they were a, a hatching, uh, hatching, went to the hatchery type of deal or something. And, um so, you know, just every facet of agriculture and that's, and we've even done some of that, the, all aspects of that, but yeah, I was born. So how much do I know? I could go a whole long time because I was actually born with 19 grandparents. Wow. Uh, I had seven great greats when I was born and I remember three of them. I have memories huh. of three of them. Um, mm. And so I made 18 years with all of my great grandparents. All that's of them incredible. were farmers from Polk County. All of them were uh, uh, never, never double married or you know divorces or anything like that mm-hmm. they were all farmers and all missionary baptists so hmm. i was able to uh i remember six christmases um when i was little going you know i remember uh, uh spending i didn't need a summer camp i went and spent a week with each of my 
grandparents, you know, and by the time summer was over, my folks were missing me. So they were yeah. ready for me to <laughs> come back. So <laughs> that's funny. That's also awesome. Like I, that's one thing I wish, you know, I, I didn't have my great grandparents, but my grandpa, and he was around until I was in my mid twenties. And even mm -hmm. then, I didn't maybe realize the value of asking him questions and learning about our family history as much as I wish that I had. And for you to have the opportunity and to take the advantage of talking to great grandparents, that that's pretty oh, cool. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah. Cause I remember a, a picture of my great grandmother, uh, Hazel Viles, and she, she had, uh, she spoiled me rotten because I was the oldest of the greats. That's how, we had these 20, 25 year generational gaps. That's how I had so many just so happened. I was the oldest of the greats. My folks were the oldest or second oldest of their family. Their parents were the oldest of their family. And my great grandparents were the oldest of their family. So mm -hmm. these generational gaps were just um, fairly short, you know, in that time frame. And uh, so that's why I knew them. But I remember my great grandma Hazel sitting there uh, or having just spoiling me rotten and, and, uh, mm -hmm. And I saw a picture of her on her grandpa's knee and he fought during the war between the States, you know, and this is picture was probably 1912, something like that, black and white. They were setting a family reunion under a shade tree. And he had a big old long white beard, you know, and, and black suit and grandma's a little two year old sitting on his lap. And, and, uh, you know, when you see that and here's my grandma and here's her grandpa and she's like, I am right. You know what I mean? It yeah. just shortens history down and it feels yeah. like, that wasn't that long ago. When I yeah. watched the Waltons, I mean, that that's how my grandparents, all my greats grew up. I mean, during the depression, they were all, that's what they were living. So it's, hmm. it seems normal to me yeah. to have that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, what's the, when I think, I think most like Eastern high moisture States, although not this year, you know, a lot of the open ground, they, they try to put in crops, but Missouri, I would have assumed that would have been a large cropping state too. It's, it's generally a higher moisture state and stuff, but there, it's kind of a tough terrain and environment for that. Or why, why is it so much pasture and cattle? Well, um, in the Ozarks, I mean, they, sure. you know, I'm not a geologist or whatever, but, but my understanding is the Boston mountain chain, the Ozark, which kind of is the backbone of the of the Ozarks is one of the oldest mountain ranges in the United States. So old that it's about wore down to what you, people from out West and the Rockies are going to say, it looks like hills to them, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, and the Appalachians are, are, are supposed to be very old, you know, but they're, they're not as old apparently as the Boston's because they're, okay. they're rounded off and, and uh, not, not a lot of sharp points. So sure. in these old weathered soils, you know, uh, we, we really just do not have a lot of topsoil. They, the old mm -hmm. saying is you we're only two weeks away from a drought here mm -hmm. in this part of the world. Um, uh, and you know, the, some of, some of the ground we have is kind of like prairie ground, but it's got what they call a fragile pan. And so about 18 to 24 inches below the soil surface is a restricting calcified layer. And I, I remember taking a soil morphology class a long time ago, but explaining uh exactly just know it's a hard pan it's not a plow pan i mean it's something down a little deeper but you know that restricts your water so it's either it, it restricts water going down percolating through the soil for mm -hmm. retention later and it's also once it gets down there uh it's hard for roots to get break through sure. that fragile pan so so you can get some droughty or really wet soils okay. that's that you're dealing with some of that 
Uh, some of it, there's just no soil, top soil. I mean, I've got sandstone uh, surface rocks even uh, mm-hmm. in near near this place. I'm telling you, it's got fragile pants. So, so we've got, it's not really, it was cropped at times in the past, um, but it's it shouldn't be. And even if you go north Missouri, uh, there's so many hills. Uh, you know, they're, yeah, they, they don't have the rocks we have. They got really deep soils, but they've got a lot of hills and a lot of that ground really should not be uh, farmed probably. Um, sure. that's a whole nother debate on why it is, but, yeah. uh, yeah. but you know, we, uh, as far as soil erosion and some of that, it'd probably be better off just in, in permanent pastures. But what my understanding, you know, the, the prairie grounds or flatter grounds, this country where I'm at in the, I'm at the edge of where the prairies start to the West of us. And there's a lot of cropping in the Western tier mm-hmm. of, uh, Missouri. Uh, near the Kansas border, but I'm kind of on the brakes of that. And, uh, you know, when I told you when they first settled, they they needed to grow a little bit of row crop type stuff. So they had some secondary bottoms and we've got some places like that are pretty good soil, but it's not enough to be mass. It was more for subsistence agriculture. And Mm -hmm. so now uh, you think about what was growing here. uh, They they had some prairie ground. So it would have been your tall grass prairies, you know, probably what, was the same thing growing in Minnesota, uh, big blue, little blue, uh, Eastern gamma, uh, mm-hmm. switchgrass, you know, those, those natives were, were prairie grasses and, and we had pockets of those. I mean, Buffalo were ranging in this country. It's not all hills and trees. Um, and probably more trees now, maybe than was back then, just because of the use, lack of use of fire. Um, if you'll notice most of our trees end up being in fence rows, uh, where they're protected and birds yeah. have deposited seeds. Um, so uh, I think the dynamics have changed there, but uh, the summer, once they took out and, and plowed that prairie ground, that, and then what were they going to grow in its stead? Uh, I understand that Lespedeza was kind of a, a pretty common one grown in this country, but um, fescue, Kentucky 31 fescue is what brought this country into the prominence of beef cattle production. Sure. And uh, the I don't know whether you've talked with anyone previously about Kentucky 31, but the reason they call it that uh, is uh, it, during a drought in 1931, they discovered a plant that was growing green <laughs> on the hillside in Kentucky. And they said, Hey, let's perpetuate that one. Well, yeah. they did. And uh, this, and Pennington seed is over here close to us in Greenfield, Missouri, about 15 miles away. Uh, fescue seed combining is still pretty big business in this country uh georgia has a lot pennington's headquartered in jordan i think they grow a lot of fescue seed that's the same fescue seed that goes into yard mixes and and stuff like that as well but the kentucky 31 what they didn't realize is that it has an endophyte fungus that has a symbiotic relationship this fungus grows between the cell walls of the plant um, and it is what makes the plant uh drought resistant heat uh tolerant uh cold resistant uh um you know over it uh, can withstand over grazing it's insight insect uh, resistant you know all these things that makes it the plant very hardy and be able to survive but unfortunately the catch-22 is that endophyte fungus produces something called ergovalene and it is a vase uh vasoconstrictor so it restricts the blood vessels if you will of the animal well we most folks know that the way an animal dissipates heat 
is through uh, getting the blood out to the skin so that it can dissipate that heat and, and the animal won't get overheated. Well, uh, because of restricted blood flow, because of the endophyte fungus or the, uh, the ergovalene produced by the endophyte fungus, it, it causes them not to be able to get that heat dissipated. And that's why we see uh, they started noticing this stuff in the 70s when fescue got to be more and more prominent. I've heard stories of people in their 50s, you know, planting the fescue, but they didn't have a way to, they weren't able to buy it per se, and there wasn't enough. So people were just combining it, putting it into uh, old houses and uh, going in and stirring it every so often, trying to get it dried out. And then they'd go seed it. And next year, they'd have that many more acres. So uh, that's the way this fescue perpetuated. And by the 70s, it was covering up this country or starting to be because people weren't doing as much row cropping. Um, you know, economics there in the eighties uh, were pretty bad. And so hardly anybody, or let me say that most people had quit row cropping in our, in the subsistence way. Um, and, and dairy started going out in the eighties, you know, that caused a lot of people that were doing some planting. Um, the hogs started going out. You know, we had a lot of, uh, feeder pig sales mfa was a co-op deal that had to tele auction prior to superior video auction type stuff mm -hmm. um and so so you know this methodology was going on of conversion and then it, but it was the law of unintended consequences mm -hmm. to come back to bite them and so then we're getting animals beef cattle especially is what we're talking about that uh, they couldn't shed off uh their hair uh, they're standing in the ponds uh, because they're too hot, uh, open mouth panting, um, losing their tail switches in the wintertime because of restriction of blood flow. Um, uh, fescue foot, uh, what they call fescue foot, where the extremity and the hoof would actually lose it because they're just not getting enough blood flow to the, uh, to the extremities. So that's all bad stuff. And, and agalacta, uh, especially in horses, you cannot uh, or should not be feeding any endophyte fungus to a bred mare because it'll cause agalacta or lack of ability to produce milk. Well, that also impacts cows, uh, but not to the severity it does horses. Uh, it'll also cause them to abort, lose calves, uh, you know, over the summer. Mm -hmm. um, so there's ways to get around it and still use it. You know, Kit has said, Kit Pharaoh said many times, you know, that believe in, in calving in seek with nature. Uh, but that also uh, you need to care with this, the resources in sync with the resources, forage resources you have in your environment. And like Kit said, when God made uh, uh, Missouri uh, and the fescue was not there, <laughs> you know, um, and, and so uh, we do a fall calving herd on the fescue. And that's one way to mitigate or lessen the, the severity because the endophyte fungus is most concentrated in the seed and it's, and then next into the stem. And thirdly, uh, it's in the, the forage or the, the leaf of the plant, I should say. And so if you can keep it in a vegetative state, you lessen the chances. Well, fescue, once it goes to head in the spring, it does not try to go to head the rest of the year. So if you can Sure. prevent it even going to head uh, whether through grazing or clipping or something like that then in the fall it's just vegetative and that's winter stockpile fescue is probably the best thing to winter stockpile it also has a waxy cuticle that covers it um, uh, the leaf and protects it through the winter uh, so that as long as you 
don't ration out more than three days. And I would advocate you shouldn't ration out more than one day worth of grazing. Um, because if you go any longer, and I learned it the hard way one time, uh, that that waxy cuticle, once it gets broke, broken, and this comes from Jim Gearish, he said that they'll, the vault, the nutrients volatize. Basically, they uh, evaporate, if you want to think of it that way, into the air. Um, and, uh, and so they're just poof gone after a three-day window. So uh, you could be grazing something that looks like there ought to be feed there, but they're not getting anything out of it. So um, that waxy cuticle has to be protected. That's why we don't, uh, we want to strip graze. And that's probably the best way to learn to manage your grass uh, is starting with winter stockpile strip grazing and learning how to use poly wires and, and so on. Cause you don't, you can walk back across what you've already grazed cause it's not growing. Um, but you know, in the growing season, you need to do back fences, mm-hmm. but you can manage around that. So that's one way, you know, people, there's all kinds of bells and whistles. A person can try to yeah. feed, feed, you know, fescue buster or endophyte, uh, Mm-hmm. fighter you know all these different <laughs> yeah. names of different companies there's always a product on. yeah oh that's right that's right and there's no silver bullets but part of the reason uh we uh have gone into the mishona uh well let me back up and say that um so i've i've been a cooperating producer since 2006 okay um and and i've been a red angus cooperator and i initially got in with Ozark Hills, uh, Red Angus, which is uh, a cooperator, David Hall. Um, and he was a cooperator then. And, and he let me buy in with him on partners on some cows. And then I bought him out. Um, and, uh, so I've been a Red Angus cooperator all these years and, and I always bought the best hair coat bulls. And, uh, you know, we tried to manage as best we could. Um, but still I would end up with some slipping of some calves over the summer, uh, um, even with animals that were adapted. Um, and uh, so endophytes are something that we have to contend with. Well, one of the philosophies uh, behind the bulls that Pharaoh Cattle Company produces, you know, it says the breed is not nearly as important as the selection criteria that comprise the breeding program. And if we're going to run these animals in a real world environment, that's as tough or tougher than our customers. Um, that way they, they need to be able to depend on us to have something tougher than what they've got themselves possibly. Mm-hmm. But we, mm-hmm. if we're going to let that environment sort out those good cows and, and uh, we don't show any sympathy for open late or dry cows, but uh, we need an animal that is adapted to our environment, not adapting the environment to the animals. Mm-hmm. And so, so even though I've been selecting the very best red Angus and, and, and they have function, and we've had a lot of customers, I think, giving good reports on our animals uh, in the heat and humidity. But uh, uh, we just felt like, you know, we need to be always trying to get better and find something better. And so that's why we've reached out into the Mishona and the Romo Simuano, uh, trying to bring in some Spanish and African genetics into the, our good Red Angus base and uh, coming up with an animal that's even more adapted to heat, humidity, and uh, daily poisoning of endophyte fungus. <laughs> yeah, daily poisoning. That's a good way to put it. It sounds sounds crazy. And I like how you, you mentioned, well, you mentioned that like fescue was the uh, the 
kind of thing that brought Missouri to prominence in the cattle production, but also then you went on to list all the negatives about it. Is the overall perspective on it generally positive or generally negative, or is it just kind of one of acceptance of whatever it is? <laughs> well, I guess when you, you know, everything boils down to dollars and cents. I sold, um, I used to sell some seed there for a while with a, a Byron seed company. It's a, a Amish men and I owned a, a company uh, over in, in Indiana and uh, uh, they have a lot of high quality forage uh, seed uh, really focused a lot on dairies and so on. And uh, so <clears throat> I've had some exposure with that and, and they um, uh, have, you know, so I've, I've been into research in some of these companies, seed companies and stuff that they've done it, you know, there's a lot of plants that have an endophyte. So, so the endophyte is that fungus that grows symbiotically, mutually beneficial to both the fungus and the plant. I mean, ryegrasses have that, some of them. Um, uh, and, and, and they have selected uh, fescues that are what we call friendly endophyte or novel endophyte. And so those uh, plants are um, perpetuated with, a fungus that does not cause the negatives on the animal, but it does benefit the plant. Okay. That's all positive, but you know, that's, that's added inputs and, yeah. uh, and, and it can get pretty costly. I mean, I've seeded some ground with that and had good results. Um, but now if you go with what they call an endophyte free, okay, those, those are not going to have the endophyte fungus in them at all. And you can get, old Kentucky 31 to become endophyte free, just store it for over 18 months and mm. the fungus will die. But, mm. but what was it? The positive you've lost. Now the positive sure. for the plant is, is, is gone. And so you're not going to withstand drought and cold and insect, you know, yada, yada, all as well as if it had an endophyte that was um, beneficial to the plant. So when you go to look at it, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to remember. It's been so long since I did, but you know, we're, we're probably talking at least a couple of hundred dollars an acre conversion. Yeah. You know, if you were going to smother or spray, they consider like university of Missouri says, I think the recommended way of getting rid of fescue is, is to spray, smother, spray, and then seed it. Uh, if you really want to get rid of like the seed that's in the ground and so on, you'd probably be better off to uh, smother it one more time, yeah. um, you know, and then spray it again so yeah but you know when you go to doing those things you're adding a lot of cost not only sure. seed cost but you know but uh anyhow so so why has it not been converted that's it's cost yeah. it's a hardy plant it's there so yeah. you you know and and you know there's a lot of people would promote and it'd be nice to get plum rid of it but it's hardy and it's something to graze yeah. it's not always the greatest so yeah. we're working from both angles of it you know sure. I, I but i'm I'm trying to manage around it as much as possible, but we're, we're changing that up with yeah. regards to the genetics too, to try and yeah. accommodate that. Well, you kind of touched on it and we'll get into the genetics a little more yet, but you, you touched on like what most people will do is the simple route is to just go and buy whatever tub, you know, or whatever they throw out and help the cattle get through those summer, the, the tough months or something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that obviously comes with cost and, probably mm -hmm. more than it really benefits. And so you, you talked about some of the management 
and and I maybe want to dig in a little more into that and stuff or ask you to expand a little bit more on the ways that you can manage and then we'll get into the genetics that how that affects the game but yeah. what are the I guess the major thing you talked about calving date grazing when or grazing management um and, and stuff how, how did those impact again the uh, the animal's ability to do better in this environment well okay so if we're going to talk on fescue fall calving um on the on the fescue is is most optimum uh and jim garish has talked about that a lot different times but because the endophytus is lower and you've got a green uh lush fall growth when we get rain uh, if we get our August, if we get any August and September rains, we we can be golden, you know, but uh, we've been dry uh, for quite a while. Um, not as bad as Kit's teenage drought that they've had or, or one that he says can boat now out there. But, but you know, uh, the last couple of falls, we've not gotten as much rain, so we haven't gotten as much stockpile as I would like. But usually you've got some good growth that's low in endophyte fungus through the, and your calving September, October. Um, before it gets cold, because that's one thing about the Ozarks. We've got the extremes here. I mean, we go from 100, you know, not not a lot of days, but we can have a couple of weeks worth 100 degrees pretty easy. Uh, and a lot of times we've got heat indexes well over 100, um, yeah. maybe for a month or more, you know, in the summers, uh, all cold, cold, cold. Um, and then in the winter, we can have zero degrees. Um, and uh, that... The longest cold snap I remember is we had 20 days that never got above 20 degrees. And that was back around 2000, 2000, I think it was. And uh, so, you know, and we can get, we can get a foot of snow, but not a lot of times. Probably the worst thing we get is ice sometimes, yeah. but we're, we're right in the crosshairs, if you will. We'll have stuff come up out of Oklahoma uh, and then we'll have stuff come from up in the Northwest, uh, you know, Nebraska, it'll slide down here. And so, we can get it both directions it just depends on the temperatures and stuff mm -hmm. but um so so uh fall september october calving um and then that puts us breeding around uh december mid-december you know if, if we're going to do some ai sure. um and uh and then we'll uh run them till whatever first mid mid february whatever the math works out you know for 45, 60 day calving or breeding season. And, uh, then we'll wean in, in May or first of May, somewhere in there with the bulls. I, I, I prefer to, uh, uh, let the heifers stay on their mamas until like the first of July if possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, you know, a drought management tools to wean earlier, but, um, I really think that benefits the offspring a lot. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the timeline that we use um on a fall calving herd uh with the spring the spring herd where i'm at i mean there's fescue where they're at on that spring herd but maybe not um i, I know that i know that they've got a good cool season mix there too um as well as um i don't you know i don't know what what the warm season grasses uh, mix is there but my warm season here is johnson grass i mean that's that's my savior, uh, yeah. in the summer grazing, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I, and I'll find crabgrass and stuff at well, but I, I don't run a, I don't run machinery across my property very often. I will, I will have to bush hog periodically to try and sure. keep from, from brush encroachment. 
um, in this part of the world that it wants to do that, you know, in higher rainfall areas. But yeah. I don't drag, if I would drag pastures and, or maybe even run a disc, I'd probably get you know, just a straight line disc to, to cut rhizomes. I'd probably have a lot better warm season grass, but you know, it's what at least 15 bucks an acre to run across it. And if not, it's more 20, maybe. I don't know. I haven't looked at done the math on that for a while, but it gets costly. Yeah. So with the calving window, um, I guess, I, did you mention you have both a spring and a fall calving herd? Yeah. My spring herd is over in, in a Southern sure. Illinois. Okay. Mm-hmm. They were in Oklahoma, uh, with Rob Pierce for, uh, until just this last year, but Rob lost some leases and stuff. And so that I had to move, okay. move that herd out somewhere. And that's why how we ended up in Illinois. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to ask, cause I think I've heard of a lot of people down in there having both a spring and a fall herd and there's advantages to each, you know, you kind of talked about them and then there's advantages to having both because you can, you know, one that falls out, you can move to the next program without having to feed a full year if you want to keep them or whatever. And there's some benefits, but there's also a lot of extra costs that go along with that now, especially if you want to try and run herds together. Ideally you're getting more efficient if you can run all your herds and one group or all your cattle in one group but then when you've got multiple calving windows you're either feeding some that don't need to be fed like a lactating cow you're feeding a dry cow like a lactating cow or vice versa um so if you had to choose one i guess i mean or maybe it's not that simple but i guess maybe the, the easiest way is just to say that you should maybe manage with one or i guess i'll just turn it over to you what are your thoughts on that kind of general question of multiple calving windows both fall and spring or if you had to pick one or the other what, what do you think is most advantageous well it all boils down to dollars and cents like i said before and uh, each each person needs to be each operator, each producer needs to, they need to be a business person and manage their books enough to know what it's really costing them uh, to keep a cow. And uh, um, so what, I mean, your, your question is, is a good question, and, but it's, it can get pretty deep here. And, and uh, the reason I say that is because I have had, I started with a red Angus cow herd. And I'm in fescue country and they were already fall calving cows and that's, you know, it works. Mm-hmm. But I, I know economically it's going to be better to not have to take a pregnant cow through the winter. Okay. She's going to do better if we can, uh, uh, financially, it's going to be cheaper to carry that cow if we can calve in the spring. Sure. Well, so, yeah, you said it's cheaper to keep a pregnant cow through the winter, but you like you don't want to take a lactating cow through the that, winter. Did I? Yeah, that's what. Yeah. Okay, just wanted yeah, to confirm. Right, right. Okay. you're right, you're right, you're right. That's what I meant. So maybe I can restate that. It sure. is cheaper to keep to run to maintain a pregnant cow, a dry sure. cow, through yep. the winter than it is a lactating cow. So a fall calving cow, I'm trying to keep good enough groceries in front of her and her calf as to grow so that they look like something, you know, come spring. Um, well, it's going to be more economically viable to have that cow calf in the spring, uh, on green grass, you know, uh, at least 30 days of green grass in front of her. So now that means we could possibly, you know, calve a little earlier than maybe kit out in May, 
with the cool season grasses we've got, we can calve sure. start maybe first of April um, as opposed to May. Um, and we kind of set our spring calving date to be right around uh, first day of spring. So March 21, I don't want anything before that. Um, and with our short gestating animals, uh, which means low birth weight animals equals short gestating animals. So, uh, you know, if we put the bulls in or AI around Jan June 10 or something like that, uh, that should give us a, uh, no, nothing earlier than a, than a March 20 calf. If we're shooting for a, with our short gestation about an April one, but we'll always have a few that'll even come earlier. Um, so, so that's what we do with the spring. Um, and, but here's what did I say? I said AI June 10th. Well, I'd have to go back and look at the weather, what it was on that day. But we had some 100-degree stuff not very far away from that. Yeah. Um, and if you're trying to take a British breed animal and get her and ask her to cycle and get – because we don't have the Mashona genetics uh, to naturally breed. Um, and uh, – uh, enough of them i guess so we've been trying uh using the weaver ranch semen uh, to try and prove out these bulls uh and we, so we've been trying to do ai projects where well, you're asking a british animal ideally you know if we could calf, breed in july for a may calf well but in the heat and humidity of the ozarks that doesn't work uh, especially if you're trying to do ai uh, they just get too hot it's just you know it never cools out uh, high elevation out there you know in, in Colorado where it gets at, uh, you know, there we're a thousand feet here and they're about, I don't know, 4,000 feet where kid is something. I don't know exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I checked that at one time in, in the month of August, which equals a May calf. Um, we're talking about, a uh, at 10 o'clock at night here in central time. Um, I watched the weather and it'd be might still be 80 degrees and 80% humidity at 10 o'clock at night. Um, and I look at the weather app, you know, when smartphones came out, this has been several years ago, but look out there at Cheyenne Wells and, and it was already, at, you know, they're an hour behind us. So it's only nine o'clock and they're already down to 72 degrees and 40% humidity. Well, that makes a lot of difference. That makes everybody feel good whenever you can, <laughs> you know, but when it just never cools out, I think that's probably one of the biggest problems with that. And that's that vasoconstriction from the endophyte causing that problem and the heat and humidity yeah. that they just can't cool out. So they're stacking on top of each other. It's like one right. thing to have hot and humidity throw in right. the inability to dissipate that heat. And it's yeah. Compounding negative. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. as we, you know, so, so, so the reason I said it's kind of a complex question you asked, I mean, so we've got that issue of, uh, you know, it, it is more economical to run this spring cover, but we've got to have an animal that can do it on yeah. fescue because we are yeah. not going to do a deal. You made, you made a comment about a lot of people. They've got a justification for a spring and a fall herd and, and they'll just roll them and so on. Well, we don't do that in our program. Yeah. You know, I mean, I told you the uh, kind of reference some of the philosophies earlier there about how that, uh, you know, we're never making an excuse for an open later dry right. cow, yeah. you know, I mean, we're going to give a chance to every heifer uh, to get bred. And if she doesn't, well, then she's going to, you know, I'm not saying it, it makes more economic sense for me to sell a bred animal than it does mm -hmm. just a sale barn open. But, you know, we're going to move those out of our 
out of our herd. Now, if we wanted to keep a commercial herd off to the side, but we're not going to sell bulls yeah. to, to our customers out of that out sure. of cow that, that can't maintain that. Yeah. So, so we've got to find this animal that can do it in the spring. So, and I haven't, you know, and I've been a cooperator since 06, I said, and, and I guess the first uh, half Mashonas we calved were in the fall of 16. So 10 years, you know, before I started trying to get into some, what we're calling heat tolerant uh, genetics uh, from, you know, making a composite that would do this because I was always losing five to what was called bread in the, in May, April, May, whenever we preg checked our fall Kevin Red Angus herd uh, between then and, and the fall calving in September, I would pretty regularly slip 5%, uh, you know, over the summer. Mm-hmm. Well, that, you know, it costs dollars Yeah, and it don't so, make sense. Yeah. <laughs> What's your, so essentially like, yeah, you can, you can keep a cow cheaper, a bread cow cheaper through the year if you calve in the spring, but you have to get bread first. And so what you're gaining in cost savings, you're giving up potentially in breed back, if, especially if you don't have the right adapted genetics. Is, is that, yep, that's kind of why we've got to be yeah. good. We've got to be good bookkeepers and know our costs. Yeah. You know, so I don't <laughs> think we can cookie cutter. I don't think we'll ever be able to cookie cutter and say, well, this is the way, you know, yeah. you got to do it. Um, you, you're going to need to, but you've got to be, you got to, if you just do it just because that's the way it's always been done. I get yeah. you to say you're leaving money on the table somewhere. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you're probably your quality of life may not be, uh, as, as good as it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, we've not put up hay off of this place. Um, I got it all up to snuff fertility wise, you know, and natural methods. I mean, I used a couple ton of, of a turkey or chicken litter and, uh, you know, and I put some traces and I did some, some long lasting natural things like cow foss and super cal SO4. And, you know, I mean, I brought my, t- I was doing some soil consulting. So I, I kind of tried to bring it up like William Albrecht's methodology of mm-hmm. uh, soil balancing and, and, and I did that and we spent several dollars, but we did that way back. And I can't even, I need to look at the record so I can tell you for sure, but it's like 2006, maybe uh, eight. I don't know, somewhere in that range. And I've not put fertilizer on this place since. Yeah. And I've not put up hay since uh, before that time, probably. Uh, but I know we sold it when my 15, my almost 16 year old son was born. Um, the day after he was born, my grandpa had an auction for his place. They sold, and we sold all our hay and quit up there. So sure. I know it was 16 years ago that we quit putting up any hay on this place. So I buy, I mean, I have to feed some hay. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, we're not, we're running more numbers of animals than I need to, if I was going to try and do it all with that. But, uh, you've got to have a economy of scale there too, you know? Um, and so, so I do buy in my hay, but, you know, kick the hay or get the hay out, uh, book of Jim Garrish. Yeah. Kick the hay habit, however it's called. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, if we can get, get that accomplished, uh, and bring somebody else's nutrients in now, whenever you're at the mercy of a bad hay uh, year like this, and you got to have it shipped in for, you may pay for it, but, um, everybody is, even yeah. the cost, uh, uh, you know, a neighbor here put up 40 acres, I think it was. And, uh, um, uh, 
and they spent $5,000 in fertilizer. They told me they run their equipment across the field and they only got one bale per acre. I mean, you know, that the, so it's basic is over a hundred dollars a bale. They got 40 bales out of $5,000 worth of fertilizer, plus the expense of running across it, yeah. fuel and time. So yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm thankful we don't put up hay. No, I, I think that makes sense. A few years back, we gave up making our own hay. We, or we, we sold the equipment anyway. We still do make mm-hmm. occasional hay kind of for our spring flush uh, mm-hmm. balancer, how we take exa, uh, take care of some of that excess feed, but we're working right. towards minimizing it and bringing in more, which is another advantage. You're importing fertility as opposed to just exporting or moving it around within your farm and a lot of advantages to that for sure. And so let me let's let before we get too far away from it, Jared. Uh, yeah, that that's one of the advantages of a fall calving herd is that spring flush. You've got an animal up big yeah. enough that can help you graze that. And, that's a good and point. so that that's another advantage of a fall calving herd. Hmm. You know that that you can economically justify yeah. uh, that fall. So that makes sense. Huh. Well, yeah, it seems like Missouri's got to be one of the most. Uh, complex management areas maybe i'm wrong and i'm sure people from everywhere else are saying you're wrong we're all complex and everybody's got their own complexities sure but there's a lot of things to consider where you're at yeah yep yep there is yeah cool um well that's a good kind of segue into the you know the importance of having the properly properly adapted genetics to to match that type of a system and so i guess we'll head into that a little bit talk a little bit more on your red Angus that you've done for years for, you know, for the long, a long time, um, how those, you know, work and have been adapted and, um, maybe some of your earlier, I guess you bought into some cows from David who is already kind of doing it, I guess, but I don't know if you've got experience working with people who have commercial cows and then start using some, something from you that, and and just kind of see what that transition process looks to having adapted cows in a, in that environment. Okay. Um, well, so, uh, 2006, uh, was when I actually, um, bought the lead off. Well, let me, let me back up to 2005. No, let me back up to about 2002. I bought, uh, 2002, I bought a set of commercial, uh, black Angus, uh, Brangus type females, uh, at the uh, Joplin stockyards. They had a big special cow sale and and just like most folks around you know i was uh i guess i was about what 30 years old you know and and uh we i'd got a place bought and and going to run some cows and and uh we uh i think it's 28 head of bred heifers um and of course they were bred for not spring but winter calving uh i, I cannot call january and february uh spring calving uh, and I think that's when they were all to do. Uh, but I had everything from little Aberdeen Angus cows up to some big, what I'm going to call jug headed Bramer type, you know, the long head, uh, big ears, lots of dewlap. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I don't mean it derogatory to those who do have some, some Bramer in them, but, uh, just as a descriptor, descriptor here, but, um, they, uh, these, of these 28, I remember January, I was teaching ag, high school ag at the time, about 20 miles away. And it was out of school for snow that day. And uh, I'd went out and checked these girls. And uh, there was this one 
And I just checked her, and then I went in the house to go eat dinner, and I went back out to check her again. Knew she was getting close. She had had that calf just in that 30 minutes or an hour that I went in to eat. And uh, I'll be if that calf wasn't frozen dead on the snow. <laughs> well, that tells me uh, January – Kevin, February Kevin makes absolutely no sense. I don't want to work that hard. <laughs> um, and then uh, I recall, you know, we, and I'm really not sure why with commercial cows, we were tagging them and stuff. I mean, Kit's philosophy of uh, that cow knows who her calf is. If it's a commercial operation, I'm probably not going to uh, worry a lot about that. Um, but uh, with our registered and, and uh, the way we do things, we have to know if we're going to share that information with the customers. So we have to get a birth weight and tag it. Um, but uh, we were doing that at that time with this set of cows. And there's one of those Brangus type. Um, and uh, actually the one that had that calf that died, it was that uh, Brangus type too. Um, but this, I recall my dad, he was spry back then, uh, fairly so. He was you know, about 50 and I guess I'm about that age now. And uh, he, uh, I know he, he went out there to try and keep the cow back with a cattle prod and I'd grab the calf and pulled it under the hot wire to tag it, grabbed it by a leg and I'm going to tag it. And, and, uh, I recall that cow chasing my dad around in circles and he was <laughs> hooping and a hollering trying to get yeah. away from her and, and waving the cattle prod behind him, trying to keep her off of him. Well, <laughs> so bad disposition, yeah. you know, I, uh, that's crazy. You know, why somebody need to get hurt? You know, and I recall another cow, uh, and, she, and I bought her sale barn. She was a, kind of a Simmental type or something. And I remember, uh, I always run her through the chute and had pretty decent setup, but that cow come out of the chute, turned back on me. And I mean, I was climbing up the chute. She was powdering my puff. You know, she was, my, 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 my back end was getting a little bit sore from her head button yeah. as I was climbing, you know? And, uh, so disposition, man, we don't need this. You know, nobody needs to be getting hurt for yeah. this kind of stuff. Um, and we couldn't get that one that bad one I was just telling you about out of the got her caught in a barn then had to try and get her in a trailer to send her to town once I got her in a trailer she didn't come off of it until she got at the sale barn you know mm -hmm. um so life's too sh short for that kind of nonsense and uh so that got me looking and I'll tell you I did a a uh and I only got like 14 of these 28 bred back oh. the next time oh wow this uh, this is killing me. I can't do this. This economically, you know, and here I'm just trying to get started. So, um, I, I call, or I got to doing a Google search and this is somewhere in 2003, I think. And I'd started at the university at Missouri state in Springfield. And so, cause we didn't have internet back then, uh, but they did up the campus. And I remember doing a Google search for, uh, grass based cattle genetics. And that pops this within the first two or three, um, uh, listings. It's Aero Cattle Company. And so I got to doing a little uh, uh, reading on that, reading these philosophies and think, well, you know, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, and I, I, I uh, ended up then uh, studying that out. I took, signed up for the emails and um, uh, started taking those and studying those and finally decided that um, you know, I'm I think Kit ended up being at maybe at Kirksville <coughs> at the livestock, Missouri livestock symposium, uh, Kirksville, Missouri. And then, and then I think he's at the grazing conference in Springfield, Missouri. And so I'd heard him talk a time or two and I've been taking these emails and, 
and uh, finally went out in 2005 and he took time and showed us all the bulls there at the, at his place at headquarters and these were the uh, I guess these were probably the 18 month old bulls um, or they were going to sell as 18 monthers in the fall sale um, I didn't buy a bull then but they, at that time they had a heifer sale and so I'd I ended up buying some commercial females, sight unseen, and then came back in the spring to buy a, uh, and they were bred for spring, Kevin. And then I bought a red Angus, the lead off yearling red Angus bull with the intention of breeding up these red Angus cows on the B side. They were commercials. Also with the idea of maybe doing some grass fed beef or, you know, just all, just trying to keep my options open. And then if I had a good set of red cows, Hey, if uh, the market called for a set of lemon uh, calves, which Charlotte Cross, or, or if I want to sure. turn them black, I could do that. Or I could put a Hereford on them and make some motley face. You know, whatever the market was, a red Angus base of cows would, should give me flexibility to go lots of different directions. And uh, so I did that. And then I was in some, oh, some kind of a grazing school or something where, and I was wondering about buying some, some, other pharaoh cows and david hall had the chance to uh, he had some that he was selling and i i got to visiting with him and he like we kind of on the same page philosophically and and decided that well we could maybe get some registered red angus cows instead of the commercial and and so i did do that and become a cooperator so we were doing that trying to like i said buy the very best slick hairs um you know out of the fescue belt type of genetics and you know and, and and selecting for the right kind and i've got i mean i really feel blessed the good lord has given us a you know a good uniform set of cows uh we're consistently a three and a half frame 1100 pound cow um and kind of right on the money there we've used a whole super pud i'm not sure there's any even semen left on super pud he made some good uh, changes in our herd. Um, the, uh, carefree bull that David Hall, uh, had, uh, raised and he, he did some, some good things, uh, slick haired. I mean, we go back to shortcut, um, you know, Colorado hobo, not so much in our, our part of the world. Uh, he had a little too much hair. Um, and, and so, uh, but you know, when we go over to uh, cash crop or, uh, uh, shortcut uh, uh super pud which is a shortcut son those those genetics have done really well and i feel like uh, i mean kit got along great with like johnny be good and hobo out in his country but here you know each region is going to have a little bit something different that works in that part of the country probably uh than others and mm -hmm. so um i'm sure you found some that work very well up in your country um you know minnesota's different enough that you know so so anyhow i i find that uh but we kit and i did a big i set it up for him he did the talking and i did the driving of uh what we called our fescue country herd quitter tour uh back in 2000 so january of 2013 i believe it was and in in uh, the fall of 12 he and deanna his wife had been down to florida to see the only uh, big Mashona herd in the United States. Um, and uh, then he uh, was telling me all about it on this 2,000-mile trip we were doing. And he did uh, 
10 talks in seven days. Uh, he doesn't want to do those anymore. Yeah, that's a busy trip. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, so uh, he, we got all fired up about trying to come up with, a, you know, here's, here's some, something that would stay moderate framed, easy fleshing, uh, maternal, uh, good carcass quality, um, uh, good disposition, and, and something that would handle the heat uh, and poor quality forage. Uh, and I'll, we can talk on that in a second on the traits of Mishona, but so we're thinking, man, that sounds like we could probably come up with a heat adapted composite with our good genetics, red Angus and or black Angus and the, some of the other cooperators, uh, that would, that would be something that would handle this heat and humidity from let's say Missouri South to Louisiana and East all the way to Georgia and the Carolinas and Florida, um, along the Gulf coast. And if we could come up with a, an animal that would be able to not have any boss indicus, because unfortunately, and research shows this, um, you know, boss indicus, boy, they could, that means Brahmin cross stuff. Uh, you know, they're good. They're good for handling the heat uh, and, and probably the humidity, but, and, and you're going to get some hybrid bigger when you cross, you know, for growth, mm-hmm. but they get docked pretty hard for the, uh, the extra leather, if you want to say that (laughs) ears, you know, dewlap, uh, sheep, um, that, that a lot of times they're known for poor dispositions, uh, um, uh, very flighty even, you know, um, and so that gets into dark cutter things in the feedlots, uh, you know, that they can be stressed. Uh, then we get into, uh, carcass quality issues, um, uh, fertility issues where, and, and I know there's, there's, don't get me wrong there's good and bad and everything but as a breed as a whole uh, or what what research has shown is, is that they have you know later maturing um and, and we're trying to get an animal that's going to calve at two years of age first time um you know and if they can't do that until they're two and a half or three well then you're costing yourself down the road economically mm-hmm. um and then breed back uh, you know, uh, fertility. And like you said earlier, hinted at, uh, the only way we're going to make money is if that cow's having you a calf every year. Yeah. Um, you, you just makes no economic sense otherwise. So, so here's, that's the major purpose of, of looking at this African genetics, the Mishona kind of first sparking our interest to in bringing that in. And then, uh, because, uh, historically those, these, those Mishona came from Zimbabwe on the east side of africa um and uh my understanding never been there but from uh johan zietzman is is one that's been big to educate people in these states about the shona and so on and he was very big proponent of it and he worked under jan bonsma so you know there's a there's a history there but anyhow he uh, what we learned or have learned from about the mishona is that they grow basically all of their grass that those cows eat over there in, in about a two month window. And they have to graze that poor quality forage for 10 months of the year. Well, for 12 months, I guess. And, and, and they're able to maintain a pregnancy during that time, perpetuate the breed, maintain all these things. Okay. So does that sound anything like a a poison ingestion and poor quality of fescue during the pregnancy time, uh, yeah. heat, humidity. So 
that's why I thought, well, you know, Hey, let's, let's give this a try. Yeah. Um, I'm very pleased with what we're seeing, but I'm about five years behind where I'd like to be. You know, if we first talked about that in 2013, um, and it took us a while and Aldi Witt and I, another cooperator, we were both pretty fired up about it and we were hunting and hunting, trying to find us some good red, uh, Mashonas, uh, and, uh, we settled on, uh, I found one and worked with Joe Hopping, um, bought partnership with him on a bull. We called him Tarzan and he was what we call a bay, um, not a cherry red, but a, a bay color. And, and he's got scurs, but you know, if you wait forever, you may never find that perfect yeah. animal, but, but yeah. phenotypically, well, my big thing was, you know, as I think about study about these Brangus, uh, you know, they've been around since what, the thirties, 1930s. And, uh, that you'll see Brangus three eights, five eights, uh, three eights Angus, five, or excuse me, five eights Angus, three eights Brahmin. Some will look like little Aberdeen Angus and some of them are looking like sure enough Brahmin. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, I think the reason I'm not an expert, but from what it was, what makes sense to this country boy is that when you've got that big of an extreme of genotypes, uh, between a Brangus and a, and a low Aberdeen Angus, you're going to have genetic rolling of the dice that the combinations are just going to get the all over the board. Well, so what I tried to do in what we found with Tarzan was phenotypically uh, a, a Mashona that was as close to our red Angus good and, and proud of our red Angus, what we've got phenotypically uh, that we, if we weren't so far extreme well, we could get the good out of both of those and maybe make make a, a, a something we could lock in the quality quicker than going out and not have these extremes and get some uniformity in them mm-hmm. now that's that was the purpose and why we used that animal uh you'll see other mishona that are uh you know sometimes that first cross generation cross looks different but um we used we produced our first bull he's diamond is what we called him um and uh he was sold in the spring of 18 sale, I believe in Texas. And he's been making some wonderful, beautiful females. Uh, I've got a herd of, of, uh, his daughters now, uh, that, uh, are just peas in a pod. And, uh, the breed back has been breed up. The first time has been great. Breed back has been great. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I'm really pleased with what the Lord blessed us with there. And I just, um, we're just kind of wanting to perpetuate that and something that's interesting. Uh, I've seen some of our, we're just making some of the first time we're using uh, straight Mishona semen back on those diamond daughters and making some that are five eights Mishona. Hmm. Um, and they're, and, and I believe it, I can attribute it to uh, the diamond influence there that we've got. And uh, those those daughters are making better five eights, I think, or ever bit as good, if not better, five eights Mishona offspring as some of my really high quality one A's are making half bloods, you know. Sure. So uh, I don't think the Mishona is a negative. Yeah, if you look at a Mishona straight Mishona, it's not going to sell at the sale bar. I mean, it's just not. Uh, the United States market wants a certain type of an animal and we need to produce an animal that's going to be marketable. But uh, if we can get the right genetic, and I tried it with commercial cows, 
that were pretty good and, and a lot of years of PCC uh, backing uh, genetics. But uh, I can tell a difference between those thick 1A red Angus cows of PCC genetics that we've been having since, well, David Hall started. He was doing it 15 years before I started, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, anyhow, I just feel that we could, uh, uh, we're, we're making an animal here that I think we can, that's, that's really going to work and going to stand behind. And I've still got a few red Angus cows here. I'm losing them because they're aging out on me. Sure. Um, and I'm, and I'm making the percentages, but when I look at these one, a cows, I've still got, you know, and I've got, I'm looking at the oldest one out there right now. She's 12. Uh, no, she's 13. And, uh, she's bred back AI with her, the fall calf here going to come hopefully Lord willing. And, uh, you know, she goes back to some Roy BB genetics. Um, you know, so I picked up a few outside of our program cattle, but they're just, most of them don't work. <laughs> yeah. Most of them, uh, outside program cattle don't work, but these, uh, you know, she's slick. She's, uh, and I even mm -hmm. thought about calling her the first calf virgin heifer. Cause I thought, ah, she might not, she don't maybe look too small, but she's turned into one of the best cows. So you better just let mother nature sort those cows out. Mm -hmm. Um, so those, what I'm saying is these one, a cows I've got still, they're slick haired, they function, they, they're fat now, you know, they wean the calf and, and they're doing the job. So if you start with that kind of a base of cow and add to it, this heat adapted influence, then I think we can just keep a gaining yeah. ground with it. Now that's, that's the thought behind why we bringing the Mashoni into the mix. Yeah. And there's a lot that goes into profitability and these things I'm going to ask you about are probably one of the lower end of it. Um, you know, the profitability is having a cow that gets spread back can thrive without inputs in your environment. That's really what probably is the largest contributor to profitability. But a lot of people are get probably concerned with carcass traits and production meat, like uh, weaning weights and things like that. And so I, I hesitate to even ask you, but I'm curious as you've integrated these types of cattle, have you seen meat quality go backwards, production, you know, calf weights? go backwards at all and and again i know that's I, I recognize that's not a really important thing but i'm just kind of curious what you've seen with it right well let's let's hit on the carcass traits now of of the mashona um so i've not seen let's say i was at the university jared for five years and two years of graduate school now my you know my stuff was in soft science but uh meaning uh, social science ag ag education stuff, mm -hmm. but, uh, uh, the system I saw enough and, and, and it's not no big secret that research is only as good as, uh, as the data, good, you know, data, good data in good data out yeah. uh, results out, uh, poor junk in junk out type of a deal. Yeah. But, um, uh, so we haven't done any research ourselves. Um, but, but um, other than observational, um, but there was actual published research done. I believe it was, I can't say if it's Texas Tech or Texas A&M. And, and it, you can actually go to the American Mashona website uh, that, that uh, Jim Weaver um, put together. It's still up. Uh, it's old and outdated, but he does have links to uh, some of the research there um, of, of carcass stuff they, they did some i think it was michonne on black angus and so they ran them through and so the data's there uh with carcass quality on half bloods um 
in either tech or AM, I don't remember which it was, um, in a feedlot type deal. So, and it may even been the Texas Ranch to Rail or some program, I can't remember. But, uh, you know, anecdotally, half blood stuff that we've had butchered ourselves and, and uh, you know, gave, uh, sold one to, to an individual that, you know, sent me pictures uh, of the marbling and the, uh, and the and the external fat that this girl put on on, on grass, you know, yeah. it's about like a two and a half, three year old that you know that didn't breed or whatever. Um, and so there's that. Um, we also take our uh, do our ultrasound data on all our bulls. Uh, with uh, yeah. Clay Nash does that for us uh, at our bull development uh, before sale time, and it gets published in our catalogs. And so that. Uh, marbling scores and there's variations we do see between herd sires or uh, between different sire groups um, you know but uh, their marbling is is just as good and I'm going to say this because there's a little there's something going on a little difference and I I've read through Jan Bondsman's book uh, A Man Must Measure and I and I don't know if I've even contemplated you know, boy, it'd be nice somebody set up a research study <laughs> to test this. So, yeah. but, you know, once again, coming up with that stuff um, and the monies uh, to fund it is, is not going to probably happen too often. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, what I, what it, basically these heat tolerant animals, and it makes sense. If we're not careful, we can be measuring things for British animals, British breeds that are, or continentals even, that uh, you know, these African genetics and, and the Spanish genetics uh, that we'll hopefully get a chance to talk about with the Romo Sinwano are, are, are going to be, they're going to function different because they're adapted to a different environment. Um, the best ex- explanation I heard about it was, okay, and when we do a great job in PCC, I mean, if you look at the, at the uh, what we call you know, fleshing ability, uh, what Kit has, uh, we used to evaluate fleshing ability in the back alleys but you found it so highly correlated to the ultrasound uh that we just kind of quit and just use the ultrasound scoring sure. but yeah. uh we i remember uh, a set of kieto sons we've done the, the the uh tarzan sons which diamond came out of in 16 and then we had some kieto sons in the next group and tarzan sons and uh the kieto boy they were some of them just really flesh looked great fleshing ability wise but they went through an ultrasound them they didn't have hardly any back fat enough so that we almost would have been down way down on our fleshing ability score but they were fleshed up but it wasn't exhibited on back fat well now let's think about this if you've got a heat adapted animal and and do you want to uh throw a quilt over that animal or a or an electric blanket over the top of them to try and insulate them <laughs> from the heat, or are you trying to get rid of the heat? Mm-hmm. You understand they they need to be able to live off of fat, stored fat, but a heat adapted animal is going to have internal fat. They're going to pull from their internal fat. Now, sure. is that deposited as kidney, pelvic, and heart fat? I don't know 100%. Uh, is it... Uh, maybe more in the marbling and they're going to pull it from their marbling storage, but they do not put maybe as much over the back. Hmm. And, and, and it makes sense. Why would you want to throw that insulated yeah. blanket over them? If you're asking them to dissipate heat. Sure. So that's why I say regionally, we may be looking at a little bit different critter, but 
for the eating experience, the marbling uh, is there. And yeah, we need some fat cover to protect the carcass hanging in the cooler. Mm -hmm. uh, but do we need to cut off, you know, and waste and throw away? I mean, there's not a lot of market for tallow anymore. You know, I don't, we don't, we just don't see that for candle making and, and stuff. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, so they are a little different animal. And, uh, sure. and I just, I think that that's going to have some bearing in some things, but quality of the carcass, man, the eating enjoyment and the yeah. ease of fattening is there. Uh, I think the next thing you asked on was like on weaning weights and so on. Well, I'm not seeing the, uh, a negative and uh, there uh, there are individuals uh, you know sometimes with the uh, some of the Mashona can be fairly small um, mm -hmm. you know but we're uh, it's I find that frame score uh, is as much of a meat in the middle trait as any of the traits we select for in our uh, operations and in, in PCC so if mm -hmm. you've got a four frame cow and you breed to a two-frame bull, you can get a three-frame offspring. Yep. And conversely, if we take a six-frame cow or a seven-frame, let's say a six for easy math, we take a six-frame cow and breed to a four-frame bull, we're going to end up with a five-frame offspring. Now, does that get you down small enough? I don't know. Uh, I would speculate that the ideal frame size for our thick, deep-sided, easy-fleshing cows is going to be somewhere in the three and a half to four frame. Sure. Uh, we might even say three to four frame. Now, you, you know, Kit, he's got cows that weigh way heavier out in his country on that hard grass mm -hmm. with a smaller frame. Uh, and Kit's made the comment, he thinks we probably starve a frame score out of them on fescue. And that may very well be, I don't know. Um, but uh, I know we've done hip height, and, and weights and uh, tried to be conscientious of that. And a three and a half uh, frame cow, 1100 pounds is kind of, that we're just pretty consistent. You can about throw a level over the top of my herd of cows. And that's from two year olds to, to uh, 13 year olds. And, and you're just not going to see a whole lot of difference in them. So sure. yeah. pretty, pretty pleased. So that's frame score. So, so, uh, frame has a size makes a weaning weight size difference you know somewhat yeah. um but but in our package with more muscle i mean i'll uh, when, when my, my my quarter michonas uh you know that i'm getting like from putting diamond back on red angus cows or whatever yeah. uh they're so thick you know that you're not going to see a weight they're going to be heavier i guess is what i'm saying than my yeah maybe some of those half bloods but uh, Diamond himself was a half blood. So, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. and that's part of the thing we're trying to figure out here is what's the ideal mixture of, of this heat tolerant composite so that our customer gets enough of it that the heifers he, he or she keeps are going to function for him yeah. uh, and do what they need to do. And then the uh, uh, yet have a marketable product at Sale Barn where they, you can't. Yeah, you know, they run them in there, and you just know they're good cattle, good yeah. slick, hided cattle. Yeah, yeah. No, it it's interesting. I, I mean, I think this is kind of 
the weaning weight stuff is interesting to me. I think there's that North Dakota study that found smaller frame cattle in a tough environment that drought year actually weaned higher. And it kind of goes to show that weaning weight EPDs are really only in a you know, relevant if the environment can match the genetic potential of that animal, animal, but very rarely does the environment the cattle are in provide the nutrients to actually match the genetic potential of an animal. And if you're in some sort of a nutritionally limited environment, which most cattle are in, having the most adaptable and low input type cattle, like what you're doing will be advantaged in weaning weights. And so I think Rob Pierce talked about having equal or maybe even greater weaning weights when he started moving towards his kind of heat tolerant genetics. And again, yeah, it, it, that's not the most important thing that the thing that goes along with that too, is when you can equal or increase weaning weights while increasing stocking rate and having more cattle, more total pounds and, and everything. I mean, that's where it starts to get really exciting. You bet. Well, I'm, I'm uh, sorry that I don't have uh, uh, numbers uh, oh, that's okay. to analyze for you there to no. tell you, but, but the goal is, uh, you know, trying to, a cow that'll wean, you know, 50% of her body weight. Uh, and, you know, I would, yeah. I would say, and, and, and here's the thing, it depends on, uh, you know, we're going to, are we going to talk about adjusted weaning weights? We're going to talk about actual weaning weights. I mean, we've kind of got to uh, get on the same page about that, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's not, it's not uh, uncommon here for me to have, uh, you know, close to a 600 pound, you know, uh, adjusted, uh, maybe, maybe five, you know, 50 to six on bulls and, and, and five, you know, on the five fifty on the top end of the heifers, you know, yeah. but yeah. now that, that may, that may be a range of a hundred pounds too, though, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. you've got individual variations within the group. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've got cows that are two frame cows, you know, that are <laughs> smaller cows and, yeah. And, uh, and then you get those dynamics without doing the adjustments of, well, were those out of heifers? Were they out of older cows? You know, but sure. so I yeah. don't want to say a hundred percent, but I'm going to say, I don't see any yeah. negatives yeah. with what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and we're, and remember we're in the genetics business. So we're trying to select and, and, and call out that stuff. That's not going to be something that, yeah. uh, that's helpful to our customers. Yeah. And like you were saying too, and if I help me understand this correctly, it's something I'm not very familiar with breeding with composites, but if you're doing a five ace Mishona bull that somebody uses to breed heifers, their heifers are going to be, what's that a quarter? I mean, their heifers, five sixteenths, five sixteenths Mishona, that's their, their herd that they then breed to a terminal sire. I mean, those calves aren't going to get docked. They're going to be such a small percentage, uh, you know, heat tolerant at that point, but they have the heat tolerance in their females that are giving them all the benefits that come from that. And the calves that are still just as marketable and get the advantages of having a, a, a cow that matches the environment. Right. Right. Yep. Uh, so, if, you know, and that's, if we were to sell, if you, if, if customers to buy it, say a half, what we're calling, you know, maybe half heat tolerant, uh, yeah. genetics, uh, whether that's a half Michonne or, uh, a quarter Romo and a quarter Michona, whatever. Yeah. Um, but if they're half heat tolerant, then they would have one quarter heat tolerance in their, in, in their offspring. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, these quarter bloods, uh, there's a lot of those. You, you can't tell anything, uh, different about them. Um, uh, I'd say pretty well, 
with now I don't know with everybody's because I've not seen every the offspring of every bull we've ever produced, but with those of the diamond line, uh, they they're thick. They look you know they look good and they just look like a bunch of really good red cows. Yeah. Um, these daughters, and that's why I wish I had. I wish I could just had a video right here and just show you what what they were looking like right now, you know. But mm -hmm. uh, they all happen to be. I, I this morning I put them in behind a hot wire and and they're all gathered back up here wanting to go back to water now. So <laughs> sure, I, uh, uh, they're all kind of congregated. But yeah, mm -hmm. they yeah. I'm, I thank the Lord for it because I know it's all His. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, good. I. Uh... We're already up in an hour and a half here. So I'll ask you, is there any kind of last thoughts on this topic or on your, your history, your story, or the heat tolerance that you want to share before we wrap up? I don't know if I answered the questions you asked me, Jared. I mean, uh, <laughs> if, if you, I don't know, did we, did I you, so. you tell me, did I, did I yeah. address everything you wanted addressed? Yeah, no, I enjoyed this. I think it was a lot of good information. I learn a ton every time I talk to you. So <laughs> this is good. Okay. Um, well, but, yeah, and we'll have to, we can always do more if we want to get into more depth on these two. But but before I let you go, I, I do want to ask a couple more questions, just two kind of wrap-up questions that I like to ask everybody. Um, so they're kind of off the topics we've been talking about. But the first one is, uh, if you have two, three recommendations, they can be books, podcasts, uh, conferences, anything that you found valuable in your um, your kind of career, your education that you think people should check out, uh, I'd be curious to hear what those two or three recommendations would be. The uh, thing that I'd like to say uh, is probably one of the foundational sources of information to get us thinking outside the box was the uh, Pharaoh Cattle Company, the newsletters, the emails, uh, checking out the website. And uh, that's that was what got me started. Um, and then after... Uh, you know, someone uh, got me started on the uh, Stockman's Grass Farmer paper, mm. uh, and I took that and read that religiously uh, uh, for for a long time. Um, and uh, so many good opportunities and information in there. Um, and and so then all the books. Uh, you know, I believe Jim Jim Garish's books. Um, I've read Greg Judy's books. Um, uh, I've been to any of the seminars that a person can go to. I, I think, you know, we, we implement uh, low stress livestock handling. Um, you know, uh, the uh, Tina Williams and uh, mm -hmm. Richard McConnell, uh, I think they call themselves hand in hand livestock now. Um, you know, they're relatively neighbors to me. Uh, so any of that, any of those types of things. Um, I mean, I've been to all those things. It's, Sometimes you almost uh, been at it long enough, you forget uh, maybe what what did get you to thinking the way you're thinking. Um, but uh, uh, the books from uh, with regards to some of the heat tolerant animals, uh, with uh, Johann Zietzman's book, uh, uh, Man, Man Cattle and Veld. Or there you go, Man Man Cattle and Veld for Johann Zietzman. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the, the Johan or the, uh, uh, Jan Bonds, my book, a man must measure is, uh, uh, hard to find, but, uh, <laughs> that book is, uh, I've, I've gotten that giant Gerald Fry gave me that book years ago. Um, so, uh, 
there's a lot of there's a lot of good resources out there and i think if a person can try to get into networks with like-minded people that you can learn from and bounce ideas i think one of the biggest things is learn to be a good observer of uh things and and, and keep records uh so that you can reference back and maybe you've got a better mind than i everybody probably does but i uh, I forget uh, if I'm not careful, it's kind of that deal of good data uh, will help with good decisions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, cool. Well, for not having anything thought up, those were a good list of uh, some good ones. Um, last question then uh, is just how can people reach out to you, find out more about you or, or reach out if they have questions for you specifically? Well, um, we're, I think you've made it started out the, deal with regards to being on the cooperator CP's mm, uh, yeah. uh, website there, you know, my phone number and uh, the email is listed there. Um, the, uh, we don't have a website of our own, um, but uh, you know, our biography is also in the back of the sale catalog. So person's welcome to call or email anytime. And uh, we're, we're happy to share what, what we have learned. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is this has been this has been great. All right. God bless, Jared. Thank you for your time and interest. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.